Thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to kick off now. Uh, hopefully, the people who like to be fashionably late are all here. Uh, so, our first speaker today is James Wright. Uh, Woo! Yay! Carry on. I love you! He has a slight. You would have thought, you know, he just needs to grow up. This is how mathematicians always get greeted. You know you have got half an hour now on the stage with all of our attention. Yeah, there you go. Okay, um, so I, I was going to introduce you, but he seems to want to do himself. Uh, all I can say is he works for the Enigma project in Cambridge, which can be regularly found walking around with an Enigma machine. Yeah. Uh, so do mug him. It's worth it. <laughs> um, but quite hard to run away with, though. Uh, I don't talk from personal experience at all. Um, anyway, without any much more, he's going to be talking about uh, the real goodwill hunting. Uh, that's changed time for something. Oh yeah, well it's a nebulous concept. <laughs> uh, I'll let you explain that. Oh yeah, right. to go for James. Over to me. Right, okay. <laughs> mind, you know, like to hi. hi everyone. Uh, nice to meet you. So you're the hardcore. You're here early, straight away. Let me introduce myself quickly. My name's James and I'm a mathematician. So don't hold it against me, right? I'm very nice really, I promise. <laughs> Okay, I've been dipped in a special solution. I've come up all nice and fluffy. Because I, I know what it's like. So, mathematicians have this kind of a reputation. They have a bit of a bad image, I'm afraid. Yeah, you know, that mathematicians wear tweed, have bad breath, and can't get a girlfriend, <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. Which is not even true. It's not even true. Because I don't wear tweed, I don't have bad breath. You know, so it's not even true. <laughs> now, so this is one image of mathematicians. The other image of mathematicians is that of the genius and the savant and that sort of thing. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. And that's the image that they use in the film Goodwill Hunting. So I should ask this first. Who's seen the film Goodwill Hunting? Just so I get the measure of you, that's all. Uh, about, yeah, not even half of you. So I assume, who hasn't seen Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> uh, yeah, if those an adult, there was something that would have gone wrong, yeah. So, for the sake of people who haven't seen it, the idea is Goodwill Hunting here, that is his full name by the way. Will Hunting is from the wrong side of town. And but secretly, he's a mathematical genius. Now, like all mathematicians, he's tall, blonde, and handsome. <laughs> he's a love star, I don't understand that. Isn't that? And loves writing on mirrors. As you can see, loves writing on mirrors. Mathematicians in films are always writing in mirrors. Mirrors and glass surfaces can't get enough of it. Does make it difficult to shave, as you can tell. <laughs> can't get enough of it. So, Will Hunting, he's a janitor at MIT. That's how the story goes. He's a janitor, but secretly at night, he's solving mathematical problems put on the blackboard by the maths professor. Now, while he's doing this, the, it's all in secret, and the maths professor has to track him down. Eventually, he tracks him down, and he discovers that you know, he's you know, from the wrong side of the tracks. And he's getting into trouble. He's getting into fights. I think he is a sort of police officer or something. So he's going to go to jail. So instead, the professor vouches for him. He says, I will vouch for you, but on two conditions. One, that we're going to work together on mathematics, so I want to develop your natural talent. The second condition is that you have to see a psychiatrist. And spoiler alert, uh, in the end, he decides to give it all up. Will Hunter, despite his natural talent, decides to give it all up anyway. Now, what I want to do is find who is the real good Will Hunter. 
Uh, but before I do that, I thought, we might, I thought we might talk a bit about the maths that's in the films. Because in the film, there are two questions that Will Hunting solves. Now, this is the first one, which I'm not going to talk about, because it's, it's kind of just slightly on the wrong side of entertaining, I think. So I'm not going to talk about this one. Uh, but, well, quickly I'll say that uh, the Master's Professor in the film is giving a course on Fourier systems, and then he says, I've set you, I've set you the students, uh, a question on the board to solve. And it must have been a surprise to the students, because it's about graph theory, which has nothing to do with Fourier systems. Uh, and if you don't know, a graph is a network of dots and lines. So it's, it's, like, uh, it's like the London Underground. And the, and the question that he asks is, well, basically, how many ways can you get from A to B? That, that's the question he asks. So how many ways can I get from Elephant and Castle to the Seven Sisters? Basically, that's what he's asking. That's the first question. I don't want to talk about that one. Instead, I'll talk about the second question they do in the film. Now, the second question, according to the film, took MIT professors two years to solve. So if we can do this faster than two years, that makes us better than MIT professors, right? Uh, and one thing that they make a big deal of in the film is that these MIT professors, they have a Fields Medal as well. So this is something that they make a big deal of. The Fields Medal, and if you haven't heard of this before, uh, they call it in the film the Nobel Prize for Maths. Uh, it's awarded, they award four of these prizes every four years. So to a mathematician, that means it averages out to one a year. That's good. And it is... The thinking is that it's a young man's game. There's, a thing, there's an idea that mathematics is a young man's game. So they award these prizes to mathematicians who have, uh, you know, with outstanding achievement, under the age of 40. So you have to be under the age of 40. Which means that famously, Andrew Wiles, who was the mathematician who solved Fermat's last theorem in the 90s, did not win a Fields medal because he was 41 when he won the Fields Medal. I know, it's, it's, oh, I know, it's horrible. But he, he got a silver plaque instead. <laughs> he got a silver plaque, that's nice. Now, it is known as the Nobel Prize for Maths, partly because there is no Nobel Prize for Maths. You know, you've got your physics and your chemistry, but no prize for maths. The story that goes around maths departments around the world is that the reason there is no Nobel Prize for Maths is because Nobel did not like mathematicians. He didn't like mathematicians, uh, especially when one ran off with his wife. <laughs> Unfortunately, that story isn't true. Oh, I know, and it's so disappointing. The story isn't true. Nobel wasn't even married, so it's not true. Uh, but I guess the real reason why there is no Nobel Prize for Maths is... Like he didn't value the subject, he didn't think it was important or worthwhile, so there is no Nobel Prize for Maths. In the same way, there's no Nobel Prize for Biology either. But then in that case, you can kind of see his point. We're going to see how many biologists have to subset. Okay, we'll move on. Right, so this is the question I want to talk about. So, don't worry, let me read it out to you, don't, don't worry about it. So it says... Draw all homeomorphically irreducible trees of size n equals 10. Now, don't worry about that. I know that looks like Greek, because some of it is Greek, so <laughs> we're going we're to go through this. This is the question. So the first word I want to point out is this word tree. So what is a tree? So this is a tree. So they kind of branch off. Uh, it's a network of dots and lines again. So that's a tree. What isn't a tree is this. 
Now, this is bound because it has a cycle in it. So those cycles are bound, so no, that's not a tree. The other word, the big scary word here, homeomorphic, all that means is those two things are the same. And if you can see what I've done, I've just moved the dots. You know, it's like you can stretch them and you can just move the lines. So you're allowed to rotate it, reflect it, stretch them out. You've got the same number of dots and you've got the same number of connections. So those count as the same. So you don't want to draw two things that count as the same. And the final word here I need to explain is this word irreducible. And what that means is, well, this is not irreducible. And the problem here is that this dot only has two lines. And that's bad. Two lines coming out of it is a band thing, because all that's happening is you've got a line going in and then a line going out again. So nothing happens. Right? So you could take that dot away and it made no difference. Right? So one, three, four other connections like that, that's fine, but two connections, that's band. No. So the question is, how many of these can you draw for ten dots? And you can do this. You can do this yourselves. You can go home, you can do it yourselves, try and work them out. I will tell you that there are 10 to find. And I'll be even nicer to you. I'll give you a quick look. The, these are the 10 trees. This is what they look like. Uh, so these are all the homeomorphically irreducible trees of size n equals 10. Or if you prefer, that's a spider with an extra leg. And that's a guy with an afro having a lie down. <laughs> <laughs> so these are all the answers. What they, maybe what they should have asked is, can you do this in general? That's what they didn't ask in the film. If they had asked that, that would have been a more interesting question because there is no formula for working out how many ways they are to do this in general. So that's something that might have taken two years and so on, but that isn't the question they asked. But no matter, because the question itself is pretty irrelevant. The film is about Will Hunting's personal struggle. So this is what I want to talk about. So, who is the real good of the world hunting? My first candidate comes from this story. It's a bit of a legend. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this legend before, but this is the story of the math student and the unsolvable problem. And the story goes that there was a student who was late for his exam. So he was late for his exam because he'd spent all night studying. Right? And if you believe that, you'll believe anything. So he's up all night studying hard. He oversleeps. He's late for his exam, so he rushes in. He copies the questions from off the board and starts answering them. Now, the first few questions he finds easy enough. The last question seems to be impossible, but you know, he works frantically on it and he solves it. Just before the end of the exam, he solves it, he hands in his work. He gets a phone call that night from his professor who's saying, you're only meant to do the first few questions. The last question was an example of an unsolvable problem, which you've just solved. <laughs> so that's the legend, right? that's the myth. The best thing about this story is, it's true. This actually happened. This happened to this guy, a guy called George Dancing, and he was a PhD student. So he wasn't an undergraduate, but he was a PhD student. He was studying statistics. And well, the true story of it was, it wasn't an exam, but it was a lecture. So he turned up late for his lecture, and he copied two questions from off the board, thinking it was a homework. And he went home and answered them. He handed them in to his professor, this is Naven, he handed them in to his professor, and his professor just went, oh yeah, just stick it on my desk. Danzig did remark that the questions did seem to be 
<laughs> but it turned out, well, the way Danzig tells the story is that six weeks later, Naaman wakes him up on a Sunday morning, pounding on his front door, and he said, can I write the introduction to your paper? This is the first Danzig's heard of it. He said, what? What paper are you talking about? Those two questions were unsolved statistical problems, which you, you have solved. Uh, the following year, when he had to choose a PhD topic, uh, Naaman said, oh, wait, well, just take those two problems, stick them in a binder, we'll call that your thesis. <laughs> now, maybe you have to have gone through the pain of doing a PhD to appreciate how much I hate him right now. <laughs> so this is one candidate. Uh, in the film itself, they talk about Ramanujan. Uh, Ramanujan is a famous Indian mathematician, and I'm going to talk about him as well. But there are two other candidates for the good Will Hunting character. They don't talk about these two people in the film, so uh, let me tell you about them. These are the two other candidates, Walter Pitt and William Siders. They were both child prodigies. They're both from America, uh, right, you know, beginning of the 20th century. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you sort of a brief history of their story and how it lines up with Goodwill Hunting. It's going to be a series of facts, I'm afraid. That's a bit over there. It's going to be like fact, fact, fact. But we'll try this out. So we'll start with Walter Pitts first. So he was a child prodigy. So at the age of 12, he read Bertrand Russell's Principia Mathematica. <laughs> now, if you don't know this, Bertrand Russell was a mathematician and a philosopher. He was interested in the fundamental truths of mathematics. And he wrote this book, Principia Mathematica. And it's the sort of book that proves that 1 plus 1 equals 2. And it does that on page 47 of volume 2 of the book. So it's just like proving the fundamentals of mathematics. Now, Walter Pitts, as a child, reads this book. He writes a letter to Bertrand Russell correcting mistakes in the first <laughs> volume of the book. I don't know if those actually were mistakes. I can't say. I don't know if they actually were mistakes. He's only 12, but Bertrand Russell, to his credit, instead of telling him to hop it, actually says, no, come, he invites <coughs> him over to the UK to work with him. Uh, Walter Pitts did not take him up on that offer uh, because he's only a kid, he's in the US. It's a big, big change for him. Maybe he should have, though, uh, because his family did not encourage his intellectual endeavours. His father, his brothers, they wanted him to quit school and to start work. So instead, uh, Walter Pitts here, he ran away from home. He ran away and he started to hang around the University of Chicago. So he wasn't a student there, but he was just hanging around. Now, there is another story similar to this Bertrand Russell story. There was another mathematician called uh, Rudolf Carnap. And so Walter Pitts, again as a young man, walks into Carnap's office with Carnap's textbook, right, which he had annotated again, correcting mistakes. Walks into his office, puts the textbook on his desk, walks out again, doesn't introduce himself. Carnap then has to spend months trying to find him. Right. Finally, he tracks him down. He tracks him down and he's living homeless. It's on the streets of Chicago, and so Carnap finds him a job uh, working as a janitor at the University of Chicago. Uh, now, he does end up with a career in mathematics. Pitts, bless him, was a sensitive soul, though. 
And then when uh, two of his friends had a falling out, they had a major falling out. So when they did, this really depressed Walter himself. And he went into a bit of decline. And so he started drinking heavily. Uh, he burnt his manuscript of his latest mathematical work. He, took, he lost all interest in maths. And he dragged himself to death. But there are many similarities between this story and the film Goodwill Hunting. Well, for a start, they were working as janitors at the university, uh, burning their manuscript. That happens in the film. Will Hunting burns his manuscript, and they're being child geniuses with the professor trying to find him and not knowing where he, where he is. All these are similarities to the story in the film. But the other candidate, my third candidate for Will Hunting, was William Sidus. Now, William Sidus was a famous child prodigy. That's the difference. That's the difference between him and Walter Pitts. Sidus was in the newspaper, he had a pushy family, and he was in the newspapers as being a famous child prodigy. Uh, it's said that he had an IQ of over 250. Uh, Sidus is, is the guy who came up with the 10% myth, that we only use 10% of our brains, that's him. He, that was his myth. Uh, Sidus went to Harvard, and he graduated at the age of 16. So he's, he's, yeah, Harvard, he's only a child. When he graduates, he goes to Harvard Law School and so on. But as a child, and as an 11-year-old particularly, he gave a presentation to the Harvard Mathematics Society. There you go, four-dimensional bodies it was. And he was predicted to become a great mathematician. Again, I don't know how true that is, because when you have the newspapers asking you you know, about this kid, this precocious young man, you're going to encourage him. You're going to say, oh, yes, he's going to be a great mathematician someday. That's what you But So that's what they were saying, and this was reported in the newspapers. So he has this weight of expectation on him. So he didn't have a particularly happy childhood. It's quite sad. Uh, and he went off the rails a bit. As a young man, uh, he was arrested, and he was the ringleader of a communist rally. So he was holding the red flag, itself. He was holding the red flag, him and 20 other young men. So they were arrested and they were sentenced, they go to 18 months for rioting and assaulting a police officer. Uh, Sidus actually defended himself because he was a law graduate, so he defended himself. But instead of going to prison, he was given bail. It was $500 and the conditions of his bail was to get a lab technician job at MIT and to see a psychologist. So again, we've got all these similarities with the film Will Hunting. So we got, you know, he's a rioting, assaulting a police officer, defending himself. That happens in the film as well. And yeah, he, the conditions of his bail, <coughs> having to get a job. And in the film Will Hunting, he has to see a psychiatrist. Uh, Sidus actually had to see a psychologist. The psychologist he had to see was his own father. <laughs> and his father put them in their own asylum and he spent a year in their asylum which he called a year of mental torture when he got out uh, he swore off maths and he never did maths again uh, he actually started to take up this sort of menial sort of clerical jobs he, uh, he worked the adding machines in offices he used to work the adding machines he found it relaxing and he never did maths again Again, 
are a lot of similarities with Goodwill Hunting. This is a very good candidate for the inspiration, especially because this was a famous story, especially in Harvard, because since Siders was a Harvard graduate, and Matt Damon, who wrote the screenplay for the film, was also a Harvard graduate. So there's a good case to say that this is the real inspiration. But it's not the inspiration they use in the film. In the film, they talk about Ramanujan. So Ramanujan, the Indian mathematician, the Indian clerks, they call him. So it, Ramanujan, he didn't have a formal mathematical education. He had a very limited mathematical education. He had a couple of maths textbooks. And just from these two maths textbooks, he made a series of mathematical rediscoveries, which is pretty impressive. Stuff that had already been found out but he rediscovered it by himself, so that was really impressive. He was so obsessed with his mathematical work that he failed college. He actually dropped out of college. He failed college because he was failing his other subjects. So obsessed with the maths, he was failing his other subjects. So he drops out and he has to take a job. So again, it's the same sort of story. He's taking this sort of office work. He's working at the port here. So he's taking this sort of office work. While he's doing that, he's sending his mathematical work to Cambridge academics. Now, a lot of the Cambridge academics are just ignoring it, apart from Godfrey Hardy. Godfrey Hardy was a Cambridge mathematician, and he saw potential in this work. And he invited Ramanujan to Cambridge to work here. And that's what he did. 1914, he came to Cambridge to work here. And he worked here for five years until his early death. Uh, it is said that he had come up with oh, nearly 4,000 mathematical results. And these are, these are like formulas and equations and identities. 4,000 of them. They weren't all right. Uh, when people have checked them and sort of gone through them yeah, more recently, it turns out that not all of them were right, but still, very impressive, a huge body of work. And Littlewood, who was another Cambridge mathematician, he said that every positive integer was one of Ramanujan's personal friends. So if you think about it, he has infinitely many personal friends, which I can cope with myself. Uh, imagine the Christmas card list, you can't do that. But to make this point, uh, Hardy tells a story about Ramanujan, which has become a famous story in mathematical circles. And it was about the time when he went to visit <coughs> Ramanujan in hospital. See, Ramanujan wasn't very well here in the UK. The weather didn't agree with him, and the food didn't agree with him, uh, especially because it's World War I, and he's a vegetarian, and he was suffering from malnutrition. He wasn't well. So he ended up in hospital. So while he was in hospital, Hardy goes to visit him. And to make small talk, you know, he, he says, yeah, the taxi that brought me here was, was taxi 1,729. It's a bit of a dull number. I hope, it, I hope it's not a bad omen. I hope it doesn't mean bad news. And Ram Nugent said, no, no, 1,729, that's not a dull number. No, it's an interesting number. It's the smallest positive integer that can be written as the sum of two cubed numbers in two different ways. And he's right, this is it. 1,729 is equal to 12 cubed plus 1 cubed 
and it's equal to 10 cubed plus 9 cubed. It's the smallest number for which you can do that. And for this reason, numbers like this are now known as taxicab numbers. And this has become an infamous story in mathematical circles. Now the point of the story is, Ramanujan wasn't a savant. He didn't just come up with this on the spot. That's how often it's told. Some people tell this story in that way, but that wasn't the point. This fact was something that Ramanujan had come up with in his work. This is something he knew from his research. He found this earlier on. The point is that he was so intimate with the numbers that he could come up with facts like that. That's, that's the idea. Oh, and Hardy did ask him if he could do the same thing for the fourth palace. And Ramanujan couldn't, but he did know that the answer had to be very large. Now, to understand the central relationship in the film, Will Hunting, you have the professor, and he's very keen to develop Will Hunting's talent. Now, Will Hunting is being a bit of a jerk about it, actually. He's, he's, he's actually rejecting his help, and he you know, doesn't want it. But the professor is very keen to develop his talent. And to understand why, I've got a quote coming up here from Hardy about Ramanujan, and it might help you understand what the problem <coughs> is. So this is the quote. So Hardy said that the tragedy of Ramanujan was not that he died young, but that his genius was misdirected, sidetracked, and to a certain extent distorted. The years between 18 and 25 are critical years in a mathematician's career, and the damage had been done. Ramanujan's genius never again had his chance of full development. He would probably have been a greater mathematician if he had been caught and tamed a little in his youth. He would have discovered more that was new, and that, no doubt, of greater importance. So Hardy again had this idea that mathematics is a young man's game. Some people may disagree with that, but that's what Hardy thinks, that's what a lot of mathematicians think. Uh, but Hardy did say, when asked what his greatest mathematical discovery was, he did say that his greatest discovery was the discovery of Ramanujan. And he said that it was the, his, the association with him was the one romantic incident in his life. And he means romantic in the sense of it's a great story. In that, you know, this is a fantastic, wonderful story that someone should make a film about this story. <laughs> which, is exactly, which is exactly what Will Hunting is. It's, it's the story of this relationship. I urge you to go and see it. It is a very good film. If you do go and see the film, I hope you will gain a better understanding of what it's like to be a mathematician. And I hope you will see that we are human after all. And if nothing else, uh, you will learn that there is one thing worse than being a mathematician. Being a psychiatrist. <laughs> so that's a talk for another time. So on that bombshell, I leave it there. Thank you very much. Do you ever want to ask any questions? We, if you have a question, we'll do it. We'll have a handover.
Thomas, can you do it? Yeah. Hand over, and then I'll answer your questions, and you'll answer mine. Is that sure, right? sure, sure, sure. <laughs> right, okay. You see, one problem with mathematicians is that they just banter a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should be, be trying to show we're interesting. We're not as dull as James made out. <laughs> I actually, I wish you'd come with my waistcoat on. I know, I know. We could have done an act. We could have done a magic act. I don't think that was assistant. I actually, I actually discovered, Tom, we have a paper together. Oh, sorry, wait, 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 Tom, wait. wait. Do you have a question for me? While we hand over, do you have any questions for me? No, I won't force it, that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Are you going to hang around for a bit? Alright, I can hang around for a bit, sure. Yeah. Okay, so in that case, I'll pass it down to you again. Uh, yeah, so I, I recently discovered we had a paper go. Uh, there's a website called academic.edu, uh, and it's like Facebook for academics, uh, which is kind of interesting because most academics. I'm not even on that, though. Yeah, well, I've got an email going, is this your paper? And it's and it is, it's true, both of us are credited for it. It was the script to the Matrix for Pantomime with you <laughs> as the <laughs> lead. And me and the author. I thought that was brilliant. I'm not sure I snacked that in paper. I don't. They need to work on this. I don't know. Did you have a. What is it? Um, the urge number before. Yeah. Do, you, do you have an urge number? No. Well, you do now. I think yeah, you do now, guys. Is there a plug? Okay. So, well, uh, you'd assume so. Um, I just keep talking. Okay, I'll keep that. Oh, they're under the hatches. Right. Okay. Is there one of them over there? Nope. Is it under the table? Yeah, there's some to on the stage. Right. Down there. Alright. Um, so, Thomas, uh, <laughs> Is under these tables is as you have probably worked out by now a mathematician, uh, and he's going to be talking about uh, the maths of zombies. Really, that's about it. Uh, so it's all quite different. We're talking about how mathematicians are living nice, normal people. No, they're dead. Uh, how are you doing? Dead mathematician. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, this is also uh, this is a conversation. Can you get your laptop to work whilst you're in a panic? Yeah. Um, perfect. See, this is why next time you can have questions time. ready. If we have questions ready, I don't have to keep keep bantering and keep talking. Uh, how are sound levels? Are they good? So, um, they're they're excellent. They're excellent. Couldn't, couldn't <laughs> <think that. laughs> I, I do actually have a question for um, uh, Jim. I did actually know that there was a Nobel Prize in biology. Is that true? They yeah. keep yeah. what? Just make it up. No, they keep doing the chemistry one. There's chemistry. There's physics. Yeah, we let we let the one just go. Chemistry one. It's yeah, very it important. is. So, like, like the economics one. You know, mathematicians get prizes if they do economics. Yeah, yeah. And they cheat. And we, we just have an economics. Well, biologists can pretend it's medicine. Psychologists well, get economics thing, as well. Just uh, stick a knife in. I, I, I'm a mathematical biologist, so I, James is, is a pure mathematician. So you may have noticed this because all his questions didn't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an applied mathematician, so I'm never going to win a field medal. It, it's because I don't prove anything. I'm never going to have a theorem, Woolley's theorem, which would be fantastic. I've always wanted Woolley's theorem because you're never quite sure what it does. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, but, so I'm never going to win a field medal. But doing biology, mathematical biology, because that, I'm a mathematical biologist by, by trade. I thought, well, at least I've got a shot at the Nobel Prize. And now you're telling me I don't even have that. <laughs> Screw you. Yeah. yeah. But you can change field after 14 and get Nobel Prize. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. I can, I can still right. get Nobel Prize. Uh, I take it you're ready, by the fact that there's a huge picture of zombies behind you. Oh, well, I'm going to give a few more minutes of bantering and we'll get on with it. Okay, yes. Right. Okay, I'll leave you to talk because he seems to be coping admirably on his own. Admirably? Admirably. Um, yeah, right. so, so uh, yes, uh, thank you for allowing me to come talk to you this morning. 
Uh, as mentioned, I'm a mathematical biologist. Uh, I studied uh, pattern formation for uh, as a DPhil, and this was essentially uh, trying to understand there's a, there's a lot of patterns out there in nature, and why isn't everything just uniformly spread out? Why, is there, why isn't everything homogenous? And that's what I tried to understand. Um, but the, the, what I'm going to talk to you today, of course, is about diffusion of the dead, which is uh, mathematics of zombie invasion. And although I'm applying mathematics here to zombie invasion, the mathematics is really just the maths of any infectious disease. So the maths behind this is just maths of influenza, uh, uh, measles, uh, tuberculosis. All of these infectious diseases are just the same as what I'm going to show you today. So uh, hopefully, well, I'll get to one of the conclusions. Hopefully that won't carry over. But anyway. So but before I do talk about zombies, I just want to talk about horror in general. So Frankenstein's monster, vampires, and werewolves. You know, these are all the mainstays of horror. And horror has always been a strange interest of mine because I understand action films. You know, you've got Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt kicking ass, and you can say, yeah, I want to be them. They're the protagonists, and I want to be them. I want to kick ass. <laughs> I said ass in Cambridge. <laughs> um, but what, what is the horror? Why do people want to be scared? And essentially, the idea of horror is that we're sort of extracting the fears of the society around us and making them have form, so we can say, ooh, I do not like this about us, therefore I can boo this character. What are these characters showing? So, Frankenstein monster that I showed there, that is essentially the fear of science. So, I'm a scary person, apparently. Um, but, uh, by the time Frankenstein was written, by Mary Shelley, uh, anatomy was having uh, a renaissance because uh, dissection was beginning to be used again. But uh, the people around at that time were saying, well, you shouldn't be interfering with God's work. Uh, but uh, so people became afraid, and that's where Frankenstein monster stems from. Even nowadays, we, we call GM food, Frankenstein food, just because we're afraid of what they could do. When um, the Large Hadron Collider was turned on, oh, it's going to create a black hole. No, nothing happened. It's just the fear of ignorance. So that, that's Frankenstein monster. Vampires, they're, they're, they're always fun. They, they're a, a, a weird bunch. So, initially, when the vampire came around, he was very much like, Christopher Lee, I am Grand Dracula, I live in the castle on the hill. Ah, ah, one, two, ah. <laughs> um, and then, so that fear was essentially the fear of social structure. So you had the count. Oh no! Oh no! Where's the plug? I thought you said this worked. There we go. Switch the button on, that's, that's, that's the key. So you had this count on the hill who was metaphorically and literally feeding off the blood of the peasants. You had all of those working in the fields every day, and then the, the upper classes would feed off the, their work. And now, as I said, the vampires were a bit of a strange bunch, because that's why it was initially. But they've become different nowadays, because they've become more of the, you know, the Edward Cullen, Twilight vampire. So what was that? that they're the more dull, loss of innocence vampire. It's this scary idea that an older gentleman will take your daughter, I think. Um, bam, uh, the werewolves, they're the last guys. What do they symbolize? I did this at a school recently, and I told them, uh, werewolves are essentially the fear of puberty. You're all, you're all werewolves, because one, at one point, you know, you're a happy-go-lucky, happy little guy, and all of a sudden you become this snarly, hairy beast of a hormone-induced rage monster. And they love the fact that they were, they, 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 these teenagers, they love the fact that they were werewolves. Um, but what about, uh, what about zombies? What, what do they signify? Any ideas? What, what does zombies mean to you? Fear of death. Fear of death. That's, many people say that, and I don't think so. 
The fear of death is symbolised by these new films. That they, it's called torture porn. And so, you know, films like Saw and Hostel. And they're the fear of death films because we live a long time nowadays. We've, essentially, the only thing that's going to kill us is old age. Okay? So we're very frightened of dying because we want our 70, 80 years. And the only thing that can kill us before that is intervention. Like, you know, so they saw in hostile films, they're taking this to the nth degree. You know, we're, we're removing your life in the most horrible way we can. For me, zombies are quite possibly the opposite for that. So for me, the fear of zombies is just the fear of humans. You know, look at that sack of meat sitting next to you. You don't know what they're thinking. They're happily sitting there at the moment. <coughs> But anybody? I mean, we like to think we live in a society where everyone's very nice to each other and they know, oh, good morning, hello, how do you go? Good after you. But look at what happened with the London riots. You tear down that facade of security and everyone goes nuts! And that for me is what the zombie uh, idea is. It's just that horde mentality of get as much as you can and step on anyone in your way. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Zombies. Unless, if we're going to understand how to survive them, we need to ask some questions. So the first question, how long do we have to prepare? So imagine you're in an underground bunker somewhere in Cambridge. The five minute warning goes off, the depth starts to rise. How long do we have to go out to find water, it's mine, <laughs> uh, food, uh, weapons, uh, and, and you know, just general defense. How long do we have to, to get to those things? Next, can we stop the invasion? Because we can either cure or kill. And I don't know how many people have been working on a cure for zombieism. I can't imagine many. So I think the only way we're going to be stopping this is actually wiping them out. So can we try and stop the invasion from taking over? And finally, perhaps the most important question we need to answer, can we survive? It's, <laughs> surely this, we need to answer this one before we even look at the others, but we'll get there. Now, to answer these questions, we need to know a little bit something about the zombies that we're modeling. And so what I'm going to be looking at uh, the zombies, the, you know, the, the slow-moving, shuffling, uh, <coughs> uh, the random movement of uh, <laughs> zombies walking around. None of this running zombie nonsense. We're not yes. having that. And zombies riding motorbikes, right act. <laughs> if anyone wants to mention 28 days later, they're just angry people. They're not dead. <laughs> These people I'm going to be talking about today, they're dead. They're not going to be winning any 100-meter races. So I'm going to be talking about random moving zombies, okay? Just, no, they don't have any aim, they don't have any goal. You could argue that the zombie's goal is to get some brains. He loves the brains, or she loves the brains, it loves the brains, whatever. But I'm talking about the very initial moments of a zombie invasion. They're crawling out of the grave, they don't know what's going on, we don't know what's going on, and they don't yet know where they're heading. So later on we may have to add in directional movement, but it doesn't really change the mathematics in any great deal. <laughs> It just makes it more complicated. So I'm just going to stick with random motion. So uh, we're going to, we've got an equation. We have an equation. I'm a mathematician. You will learn something later, or at least I'll try and make you learn something. So this is the diffusion equation. It's a wonderful equation. And I use it quite a lot in my maths. So on the, your left-hand side, we have the change in number of zombies over time. And on the right-hand side, the change in number of zombies over space. So that's all the diffusion equation does. It links how your zombies are moving in space with how your zombie density is changing in time. Um, and uh, this is Cambridge, so I assume you all know what this is about, but for those of you who don't, I just want to explain it a little bit. And essentially, it comes down to this idea that the derivative is just measuring something changing in space or time with us. 
So let's imagine we have some zombie density. Over here we have a graveyard, so very high zombie density. Down here, not so many zombies. Okay, so we have a high density over here, low density over here. At this point in the density graph, it's increasing. So our tangent here, that's pointing up, that means the tangent, the, the, the derivative at that point, is positive. Past the, the uh, peak, the tangent is negative. So the tangent is going from positive to negative. That means the second derivative of this thing is negative. We're going from positive to negative, this is decreasing, that's negative. Same idea works for the trough. For the trough, it's negative. After the trough, it's positive. That means it's increasing. That means the second derivative is positive. Now, if you look back at the equation that we had, you can see what that does to the density of the zombies at these points. So at the trough, we have that this second derivative is negative. So this side is negative. This means this is negative. That means that the zombie density is decreasing at that point. OK? At peak, the zombies will tend to spread out. At the trough, what we have is this point is positive, this side is positive, therefore the zombie density will tend to increase. Okay, so it's a very simple idea that the diffusion equation simply measures uh, or models the idea of random motion going from high densities to low densities. And it will eventually tend to spread out. This is what I'll be showing here. So, as I mentioned, these are just um, density peaks. So, here we have a graveyard, hospital, my basement, who knows? Um, and eventually, if we just add diffusion into the system, it will just spread out. So this is the first thing we have to get from this. Eventually, zombies will get everywhere. They will, under your bed, wherever. They'll, they will be there eventually. But we can also solve this equation in the future equation and get a bit more information out of it. And that's how long it'll take for them to get to us. And this gives us a very important piece of information. So I've plotted the time it takes to get to us against how far we are from the zombies against how, how fast the zombies are going. And if you want to know where I got this data from, I actually got my fiance to blindfoldedly wander around and I timed her. <laughs> I didn't even thank her in the paper. <laughs> but you know, she's still marrying me, so it's okay. Right, so let's suppose we start our zombies off very high speed and then we try and slow them down in some way. So we have about two minutes to get to us. If we start at 50 minutes, meters away and they're moving very fast, two minutes to get to us. If we slow them down, three, four minutes, not great. If we start 90 minutes away, then we've got about 20 minutes, and it goes up to about 24 minutes. We're not really gaining anything by slowing them down. <coughs> but let's now look at what happens when we run away. Like a little girl. So what I'm saying here is, little girls will inherit the earth. <laughs> right, so we start 50 minutes away, and we run away. The time it takes to get to us increases quadratically, okay? So down here we start at about four or five-ish minutes. You less than double the distance, and you increased up to 25 minutes. So here's the first thing we should take from this. It is much better to run away from a zombie than to try and interact with it and slow it down. Okay? Very simple idea, but let's, the, the maths tells us this quite clearly. Run away. Don't try and interact. You may be called a coward, but you'll live that next day. Now, to get some more information out of this, we need to put some interactions in. So all the moment, we've just got an idea of how they're moving. Do you want to sit down? You're, just, you're standing at the back there. You're just giving me a fine. So, first interaction. We have a zombie. We can come along and shoot that zombie. And he's dead. So that's the good option. But sadly, for every good option, we have a bad option. And so the zombie can take his revenge and kill us. However, there is a third option, which is the worst option. We're still standing there, quite uh, unknowing, 
and the zombie comes along and pow, we get turned into a zombie, increasing their ranks. So just in summary, what we have there is we have these three possibilities of interaction. You can add more interactions in because there are, uh, the, the original paper on this looked at what if we could quarantine people, what if we could cure people, many, many other interactions. But the, I mean, you could even add in the fact that you know, humans can reproduce, but it takes nine months to reproduce a human. It takes 25 minutes to, for a zombie to get to you. It's a different time scale. <laughs> We're not going to be reproducing that fast. So, three possibilities. First, we kill a zombie. Second, we, uh, the zombie kills us. Third, we become a zombie. Okay, so they're the three interactions. And again, another equation. Sorry about this. I just love it. We have two equations, one for the human population, one for the zombie population. I'm saying they're moving around randomly. The zombies, they're just going to be doing their zombie walk, their zombie shuffle, and the humans are going to be moving around randomly. You may say, well, humans don't move around randomly normally, and that's very true. You know, so I'm going to the office, and I'm coming home. You don't normally go out the door and go, I'm, where shall I go today? La 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 la, Cambridge. <laughs> um, what can happen? is when the zombies start attacking us, is that people won't know what to do. They'll start running willy and nilly, and, you know, random movement will occur. So that's the motion part. Here are the interactions that I was just talking about. And the interactions just take this form that whenever a human meets a zombie, those three can ha happen. Okay, so that's where these terms come from. Human meets zombie, something can happen. For a human, we have the humans dying out, because of the minus sign, at the rate alpha. And this alpha is equal to the rate at which we're killed plus the rate at which we're turned into zombies. Okay? Because B and C are positive, that means alpha is positive. That means that alpha, if alpha is positive, that means our population will never increase. As I say, the only real way we can increase our population is by giving birth. We just don't have time. Here's the zombie equation. And here we have a beats term. Beats term is the rate at which zombies are created, so the humans go from the human equation and go into the zombie equation. And they're removed, the zombies are removed, rate A, which is the rate at which we can kill the zombies. Okay? But this time, C and A are both positive again. So if A is bigger than C, beta becomes negative. So if beta is negative, then the zombie population starts to decrease. What this means is that we need to be more deadly than the zombies. If in the case that the zombies, or the C is bigger than the A, the zombies are more deadly than us, it ain't looking good. Alpha is negative, so our population is always decreasing. It never makes sense for us to interact with a zombie. Our chance of survival always decreases whenever we see a zombie. The zombies have a chance of increasing their ranks. So that's why this beat term will turn to be very important. However, where are we going now? So you, when you get these equations, like I say, they're very simple equations, just first approximation. We can throw them into a computer and simulate what happens. And what you find is a phenomenon called a Fisher wave. Okay? And the Fisher wave tells you how the infection spreads within a population. That's what you're going to see here. So this black line here, that is the human population. Okay? That's the human density. We start off. And we're spread around the planet, we're having a good time, you know, drinking and having pee fires. And I'm going to seed it with just a single, well, ten, ten, uh, ten zombies, wherever they may be. Maybe in a mall, in a, in a hospital somewhere. And then I let the equations run. 
what you quickly see is that the zombies do initially decrease because the humans try and kill them. But eventually, the zombies can infect the humans and the humans start dying out. The humans, not all the humans get converted into zombies, that's why the line doesn't appear. But slowly and surely, the zombies further and further infect the humans until the last person <coughs> died out. See, yes! Oh! I'm a mathematician and I've seen a lot of graphs in my time. That is the most heart-renderingly sad graph I have ever seen in my life. I normally talk about um, mathematical biology at the start of this, but I don't have time. And I, I, I normally talk about um, the application of mathematical biology in uh, Lion King. This is more heart-rendering than the Lion King! We get Mufasa dying in the... We're all dead! Look at it! Gone! The zombies, we can't stop them! So let's have a look at this equation. 